This is On Minnesota History, a podcast based on the work of Kurt Brown, whose column, On Minnesota History, appears each Sunday in the Minneapolis Star Tribune newspaper. I'm your host, Jennifer Johnson. For more than 6,000 years, the art of cutting hair has been practiced as a craft. In ancient Egypt, Well, I spent more than 30 years living in St. Paul, Minnesota, and near the uh, St. Clair Avenue, which runs by McAllister College, where I went to college. And I probably, I can't even count the amount of times I drove by the nondescript brick building that houses the Marvy, William Marvy Company. But the barber's work remains the same. A never-changing part of his job is reassuring youngsters who, while they may not object violently, are still a bit hesitant about a haircut. Finally, I walked in there in 1997 to do a business story for the Star Tribune about the last makers of barber poles in America. And I found uh, not only a fascinating family story, but also a rich trove, an archive kept by Bob Marvey, the son of William Marvey, and uh, his grandkid. That includes journals from his teenage years growing up in St. Paul. It includes scripts from when William Marvey appeared on To Tell the Truth, the TV show. So there was just so much stuff right there at my fingertips and the family was happy to share it with me. Today's barber is still an advisor or patient listener to affairs in the lives of his customers. It's kind of a fascinating story and I learned a lot about the history of barber poles that dates way back. to when barber surgeons uh, both cut hair, pulled teeth, and performed minor surgeries like bloodletting. How to be a barber in safe and easy lessons. It's all right if you cut yourself when shaving, but strangers are apt to be annoyed. That's what makes barbering such a response. So there was a lot of blood involved, and at the end of the day, they would take their, their bloody rags and hang them out to dry. The would-be barber stands by. He's just itching to get hold of that razor. But such confident strokes aren't as easy as they look. That became one of the most iconic symbols in, uh, I think, all of business. It's hard to think of another business symbol more well-known than the barber pole. Be more careful this time. It's easier to replace a balloon than a customer. Well, William Marvey, it's kind of a fascinating family story. His father had come over. His name was Mar Marovitz, and he came over from Lithuania uh, to New York. He was a carpenter, but he was afraid of heights. So someone told him, you ought to go out to Minnesota where the buildings aren't quite as tall as New York City. A barber shop is a combination of many things, old and new. So his son, William Marvey, during the Depression, worked for a barber supply company, and he would drive his van around. He'd leave on Monday morning and kind of crisscross the state of Minnesota. And he would sell tonics and clippers and whatever barbers needed across the state. Uh, He'd get back home for the Jewish Sabbath. They were a Jewish family on Friday nights. Along his travels as kind of this traveling salesman, if someone wanted a barber pole back in those days, they were heavy porcelain things that weighed about 100 pounds. And as the dealer, he was required to install these, these huge and heavy machines. After World War II, when aluminum became more available, him and his buddy in St. Paul went down to their basement. His neighbor was an engineer, and they tinkered and tinkered and tinkered. And right in the middle of the 1900s, on New Year's Day of 1950, they came up with the ba- from the basement with the prototype of the modern barber pole 
the Marvy 55, I think they called it. And uh, it's basically the only barber pole left in the world. They were lightweight. They were made, like I said, with aluminum. Um, and he came up with a, a, an interesting invention to go to some of these barber conventions in 1950. He attached a ball-peen hammer that would bang, bang, bang to show that these lucite, uh, he wrapped the barber poles in lucite that's kind of a plexiglass, non-breakable surface. And this hammer would bang, bang, bang against this so all the barbers could see that these barber poles weren't going to break and vandalism was a problem and uh, can still be a problem for barber poles that hang outside on public streets. So this was a way to show people, hey, if you buy one of these, not only is it lightweight, it's going to last forever and the glass isn't going to break so you don't have to worry about vandalism. So that really created the niche. There were six companies in the U.S. that made them at the time in 1950. The other five have gone out of business and the William Harvey Company of St. Paul is now America's last barber pole manufacturer. Men are no more without vanity than women. As members of a civilized society, we are concerned with our appearance before others. They have handwritten ledgers from the very first barber pole that they created in 1950. Uh, all these years later now, I think there are 90,000 poles they've made. And each one of them has a little serial number on, uh, etched onto a little plaque on the base of the, the board. So there's many towns I've been in from the south side of Chicago to California to Wisconsin where... Um, I'll climb a ladder if one's available or step up on a chair. Sometimes you have to spit on your fingers to get the grime off, but when you get that number, it's usually a five-digit number, uh, you can go back to St. Paul and look in the handwritten records of the Marby Company and find out exactly the day it was made and who purchased it. So it's a fun way to kind of track these things. If you go to any town around the United States or even around the world, look for the barber pole with kind of the uh, silver metallic bowl on the bottom and that's a marvy. It is amazing how happy a boy can look after a haircut, especially as soon as he steps down from the barber chair. To most of us, when we are young, haircuts seem pretty useless, since the hair will always just grow back again, for some of us anyway. But when you're on your way to meet your best girl, it's worth all the trouble. On Minnesota History is a podcast based on the work of Kurt Brown, whose column, On Minnesota History, appears each Sunday in the Minneapolis Star Tribune newspaper.